Welcome to the Healthy Insider Podcast, where we help supplement and functional food brands create better products. Today's host is Todd Runstead, Senior Editor. Today, you're in for a real treat, friends. I'm here with Mark Blumenthal. He's the Executive Director of the American Botanical Council, um, which educates the trade and the public on botanicals. Um, and of note, uh, I'd like to point out that the ABC has partnered with AHP, American Herbal Pharmacopeia, Roy Upton, and Ole Miss, Ole Nicholas, Nicholas Kahn, to alert the industry to herbal adulteration issues. Um, and uh, finally, uh, this is a this is notable. Mark is on the Mount Rushmore of the natural products industry. That's right. Uh, I'm not sure who the other three people are, but you're one of them. Uh, you staying well in this pandemonium? How goes? I've never had that Mount Rushmore. Uh, yes, I am well, thank you. Hi, Todd. And I've never had the Mount Rushmore uh, comment or intro. That's an interesting one. Is that like a? Uh, I, I, I just came up with it. Um, but uh, come on. Is that a diversionary way of saying that I always look stoned or something? I mean, what is that? <laughs> boom, boom. Okay, I'll well, be here all week. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, they look kind of pale up there in South Dakota, and they could all profit from just a nice, colorful Hawaiian shirt, don't you think? You know, they could. You know, a lot of people could do well if they wore a nice, colorful Hawaiian shirt, especially if they're blue like m most of mine are. <laughs> That's right. Well, hey, so uh, let's talk about the power of plants, Mark. Um, plants. Have we as animals just co-evolved under this fair sun with the plant kingdom in some symbiotic relationship? You know, animals breathe in the oxygen and breathe out, as it were, the carbon dioxide while the plants breathe it in, if you will, the CO2 and exhale oxygen. I mean, it seems as if we just have perfectly co-evolved uh, to just live together on this planet. And we're, we're supposed to eat them. We're supposed to benefit from them from, from all the ways, you know, we, we build houses and textiles, but, uh, you know, from a nutritional standpoint, you know, nutrition is kind of the business we're sort of in. What do you think about that? Plants, animals living together. Yes. Well, living together is a good thing. And a couple of things to comment on just to, just for fun, you talk about the animal kingdom, which is a term that I guess it was developed in maybe the 18th century by botanists. And um, basically, uh, one might call it a queendom, just for equal time, or um, maybe kingdom, drop the G. Ooh, I, which I, think, uh, I think evolutionary biologist Lynn Margulis came up with that term, which is the one I prefer, frankly, the plant kingdom. It's about the relationship and interrelationship of plants among each other and then, of course, among as, as if important and essential parts of the biosphere. And as far as humans co-evolving with plants, it's probably that plants, especially the higher plants, the flowering plants, evolved first. Uh, there's this great seminal essay by the late great um, biologist and essayist Lauren Isley called How Flowers Change the World. And it's a, the thesis is that the advent of flowering plants was a biological precondition for the evolution of small mammals like small rodents uh, because the flowering plants uh, were able to produce fruits and seeds and nuts. In other words, small uh, pieces of food with high nutritional content uh, instead of dinosaurs chomping on these big leaves you know, all day or whatever they ate, other dinosaurs. But in other words, the evolution about 250 million years ago of flowering plants, I think the 250 million years may be correct, I hope it is, was, was what had to happen before small mammals evolved and eventually, if you believe in the theory of evolution, as some textbooks are required to say, uh, then Texas and you have to say that, but come on. I'm in Texas. <laughs> but anyway, so that so that's his perspective, perhaps. 
So, so I mean, which, which, which came first, the flowers or the bees? Uh, probably the flowers. Yeah. Huh. Maybe. But then, yeah. and then, but I, I, what did they just rely on on the breeze? I guess which came first, the flowers or the breeze? Probably the breeze. Good question, because the flowers need bees and or other flies and or other insects or bats to pollinate. So that's a good question. That's a chicken and egg question. Yeah. But I don't know that. I'm not an evolutionary biologist, and I still should I should know that answer. So. Good, good. That's a bullet point for me to follow up on. Thank you. Yeah, and, and thank you for introducing me to a new word today, the kingdom. Uh, that's that's solid. And uh, so, you know, I I remember I was at the uh, Gaia Herbs Farm there in Western North Carolina. I think it's the most biologically diverse area of North America. And and I was introduced to the concept of plant intelligence. And, you know, I got it on a water bottle from and I was like, oh, that's cute. And but then as I kind of hung out there for the weekend, I really kind of got a sense that it's it's not just a slogan. There's actually some genius to it. What do you know about that concept of plant intelligence? Well, my first introduction to the idea that plants might have intelligence was an incredible book. Uh, came out in the early 70s, I think, called uh, Secret Life of Plants. Oh, yeah. by, was it Cleve Baxter? Uh, Peter Tompkins was the author, and he talked about experiments by a guy named Cleve Baxter, who was a former FDI, FBI guy that set up like a, a polygraph to various plants in one room and then the same kind of plant in another room where he set a polygraph up. And then if he went to the plant in room A and pinched a leaf off or put a match to a leaf or whatever, there would be a registration of some kind of reaction at the same time uh, on the plant in the other room that would be presumably totally separate. So he came up with this idea that there's some kind of, uh, maybe based on Rupert Sheldrake's morphogenic field or some type of intelligence or some type of energy that plants can share among each other, at least in this case, plants of the same genus or species. That's really fascinating. I mean, it, it reminds me of uh, there's some of the work with like with different types of music and snowflake creation, you know, and, and kind of heavy metal versus classical. And as you could imagine, uh, the the flakes would form into different geologic forms you know something uh, look looking more like the hair of calvin of calvin and hobbes fame with a uh, with some uh you know van halen uh versus some uh, some you know chopin and you might get uh, a lovely little octagonal uh geometric form you know may, maybe there's some interesting energy going on here that kind of transcends even plants that's just sort of uh you know girds all of us here on this planet well there are those people who are firmly strong believers in the concept of vitalism and vitalism there's a philosophical perspective that suggests that there's this vital energy that pervades the natural world and it transcends uh all things from one to another and that plants because of this vitalistic energy the vitality maybe uh, are able to do things like evolve uh, flowers those flowers evolve color that attract to pollinators and they evolve uh, perfume like fragrances that evolve that attract pollinators and then give them a gift of some nectar that gives them a uh, a payback for coming over but in the meantime the pollinator presumably is unaware of the fact that it's picking the pollen up and moving it around to other flowers or whatever to help that flower uh, be able to make it uh, sexually speaking through sexual reproduction to the next season. Uh, all of that innate intelligence, uh, that vital, that vitalistic energy, that, uh, that power, uh, all kinds of ways you want to look at it. Uh, it's amazing. And you look at these, you look at these flowers, some of them, more than others, the way they they follow the sun, they reach out to the sun. Many of them, they look. They, they, sometimes I've thought they were like radio telescopes. 
If you've ever been to the to the very large array just 40 miles west of Socorro, New Mexico, south of Albuquerque in the Rio Grande Valley, there's this huge uh, basin, desert basin with these railroad tracks and like a Mercedes Benz three uh, star kind of uh, design where they based a movie. I think that Jodie Foster movie. Oh, I Contact. Think. That was one of my favorite yeah. movies ever. There you go. Okay. Do you remember the, the some of the scenes there were filmed there? Yeah. They have yeah, these yeah. things, these big radio telescopes are so large. They have to be mounted. They're mounted onto railroad tracks and they move them out or in out like 11 miles out or something incredible uh, just, you know, from the, from the center. But at any rate, they're like these, I don't want to get off point here, but they're out there listening for information, uh, radio information, radio wave information from other stars, other galaxies, et cetera. And they're map helping map, you know, the, the universe with this very large array. To me, they look like, you know, flowers look like these radio telescopes or vice versa. They look like large flowers, especially like hibiscus. So they've got that, uh, that strong looking, you know, uh, morphology in, in the middle there. So that's to me, you know, kind of a way to look at how life is imitating nature because the technology is uh, utilizing some of the forms that we get from flowers, uh, which of course precede the very large array. So I don't, I, I just think that it's great because it, it's just plants are, they come in so many different shapes. They come in so many different forms. There's something like a quarter million plants uh, in the world, something like that. And uh, we have over 25,000, I think, vascular plants in North America. Something like that. There's like 80,000 vascular plants, higher plants in the Amazon. So they've got a much, much larger. You mentioned the word biodiversity. I meant to go in reference to Western North Carolina, which is probably the most biodiverse area in North America from at least a, a plant perspective. The Amazon has three or four times that that level of diversity so far as my, as my recall. I could be wrong. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, vitalism, I've, I've heard of that a little. I mean, who, just for those of you uh, uh, listening at, at home, Mark, do you, do you have any authors or books or anything that we could just kind of dig in a little more on yeah, vitalism? I'd come to mind if I think of some while we're talking, I'll throw, throw it out there. The idea is that vitalists uh, are often at odds with the reductionist uh, modern scientists. Uh, mm -hmm. Vitalism preceded the modern scientific uh, in the last several hundred years. Vitalists believe that there was this life force that goes through the plant queendom, kingdom, uh, and that the, that the vitalism was responsible for a lot of the healing energy of plants. And there are still many traditional herbalists today that subscribe to that idea. I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that it's, it's an old idea that's been dismissed by modern scientists that tend to be more reductionist. And maybe there's a way to have a, uh, a combination of perspectives that are both uh, <clears throat> um, useful and 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 uh, and constructive. But the vitalism basically believes that there's this vital force, this vital energy that uh, pervades all of nature, and especially as it applies to plants and herbal medicine, particularly vitalism. Uh, is the reason why there's this thing called the doctrine of signatures, which suggests that uh, you can tell about the various type of benefits or medicinal uh, properties of a plant by looking at its shape and or its color. Uh, that has kind of vitalistic roots, that doctrine of signatures. Although we published an article in Herbalgram, our peer-reviewed uh, quarterly journal at ABC, oh, years ago in which a... Uh, an ethnobotanist looked at some of the evidence uh, that that vitalists often um, cite as the basis of evidence for uh, supporting the idea of the doctrine of signatures, and uh, the article tended to try to debunk it. So you have people that argue both ways, and I'm agnostic on it. Uh, I don't necessarily believe just because the plant has a certain shape that that's necessarily indicative of a particular medicinal property. But there are people who believe that. Well, you know, it, it's a bit of a of an ego play on behalf of us humans to think that you know everything was made for us, 
and the sun revolves around the earth. Um, but, you know, of course, uh, you know, silly boys, um, we revolve around the sun. And who are we? You know, I mean, you right. know, maybe right. plant maybe plants were made for for bees or birds or you know us humans but but i i do like that idea of the doctrine of signatures uh, i think that's a it's, it's an interesting idea you know when I, I i like this conversation about vitality versus reductionism you know and and it seems to me like when i step back and take a look at the larger natural products industry i always consider herbalists to be the real salt of the earth of the industry, the real foundation uh, of of natural products, and and when you get into reductionism, that's you're starting to get more toward the people in the white coats, you know, and in the labs that that pharma model versus some form of of vitality. So there's there's plants that you can. Uh, that humans can consume that maybe they're not for a specific uh, a, a specific thing uh, you know whether it be immunity or cognitive health or anything but just you know building overall vitality and maybe adaptogens count in that regard because that adaptogens have that curious ability to help the body adapt to you know to what what is happening with you right, right. so you're getting back pulling back a second before we start getting into the granularity of or concept of adaptive which i think is where you want to go in some cases so let's just look at this vitalism thing and reductionism just for a moment more moment please just yeah. be able to say that i said i was agnostic a moment ago and i think the point is here i think that our tendency is very cartesian we like you know it's, it's like an either or you know, it's, things are always binary. Things often melt down to many people as binary choices, and um, I, I, I think that life is not just binary choice and, and just you know this or that, but it can be both and. And I think if you go pull back and take a different perspective from a larger from a larger, as they say, the thirty thousand foot view in the in the in the popular parlance of today, uh, it can it can be both ends. You can have a you can. Uh, appreciate the essence the people of, of, of energy that the vitalists uh, adhere to at the same time there are there it can be great value in looking at the component chemistry of different plants and even further into the genetic makeup that produces the, and is responsible for that the chemistry and the, and the different uh, within the plant that's necessary for that plant's own bio, biological survival and they don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive, these con these considerations. I try to look at the both-and things without necessarily trying to escape from making commitments. But I think that sometimes people who do make a choice one way or the other are, again, down in the hole of this of duality. And so there are times when you can actually have both-and and have your cake and eat it too, so to speak, because it's this this illusion of duality that forces us into one side or the other is a way of thinking. Now, maybe that's a philosophical position that might be easy for some people to accept and not for others, and that's okay. I'm just positing it as a potential way of uh, rethinking and revisiting. Uh, yeah, how we I, do I, li I, I like that idea. Well, perhaps not uh, for presidential elections, however, I'm just gonna say that. Uh, I've already voted. Yeah, me too. Here's to us. And, and, we, and we, drove, we drove our ballot over to the post office and put it in the inside box. So we'll see. <laughs> Although I got to tell you, in Austin, Texas, where I live, uh, I just saw on a national report this week that 90, 97% of eligible voters are registered. Wow. That, that's off the charts. I mean, that's how un-American. <laughs> I don't know what, how that compares. And it's astonishing how it's sometimes uh, how few people show up to vote. But I don't know that that's directly our current topic of the day yeah right uh, you know it's but it's on our minds isn't it it, it is it surely is you know so w w speaking of minds and uh, you know when i when i think of plants that have captured the imagination and i'm going to talk here for 30 seconds and and before you get nervous just listen to how i end this when i think about plants that have captured the imagination of the western world um, america in particular you know i think about 
you know, over the last few decades, things like, you know, Echinacea and Ginkgo, St. John's Wort, Course Ephedra, Turmeric. Recently, we have this boom in elderberry, right, for immunity. Now, Mark, I, I know you don't talk hype and, and the next thing, so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to um, uh, quite so overtly uh, pin you down. <laughs> That's okay. You're there. You're already there. <laughs> well, so I, I guess, uh, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe uh, I'm, I'm it seems like that. Yeah, well, you know, it, it seems like there are plants can influence human physiology in every physiological concern that humans might have, I would, I would guess. And so, you know, I brought up adaptogens before because it seems like now that is, that is something that has captured the imagination of the American culture in this moment. Like, okay, we're overworked, we're overstressed, you know, and then we get burned out and then we don't have enough energy or, you know, or we're too hyper. And, and it just seems like adaptogens really fit the bill. And, um, and so boom, you know, there they go. So, uh, y you know, maybe in a backdoor way you want to talk about, are there, are there certain things that are happening in the American culture that would lend themselves to some, yeah, uh, that could meet the moment. Yeah, I think so. And I think what we're experiencing during this COVID pandemic uh, is that it, one of the manifestations that I've been observing is that many people in the United States and around the world, for that matter, have woken up to the idea that, hey, they have this thing called an immune system right. and that this immune system can be modulated beneficially in a constructive positive manner by lifestyle modifications so diet sleep adequate sleep and uh, possibly stress controlled uh, techniques meditation or prayer or however people want to control stress and in our conversation, what's relevant here is the responsible use of various uh, dietary supplements, uh, the, the non-plant ones, like your vitamin A, C, D, uh, or B, whatever, the, the, what they call the, the letter vitamins, as they call them, yeah. especially these days with vitamin C and vitamin D being popular and other supplements that are non-botanical, but also the botanical supplements. And you mentioned elderberry. elderberry. A lot of people are using elderberry or stocking up on elderberry, not just for the flu now, now it's for COVID or in the belief that COVID might have, I mean, excuse me, the elderberry might have some COVID uh, beneficial results if they, get, if they get infected with COVID. Now there's no scientific research on this. And the reason is because there's not time yet to have that research to come out. Um, I mean, COVID is new. It just you know popped in the scene in January, February, March of this of this year, 2020. So there hasn't been the opportunity to conduct clinical trials to see to what extent certain plant materials might be useful to either prevent COVID, which would require larger, more expensive trials, or to help treat COVID. Um, although I know people that are reportedly working on some of these things. Um, the fact is that there are many people that are using these plant materials and or other supplements as, in ways to enhance their immunity in the hopes that they will not get infected, in the hopes that it would re help reduce the chances they may get infected, or in the hopes that if they do get infected, that the severity and or duration of symptoms would be uh, shortened and or reduced. So right now we have basically a consumer-led um, um, phenomenon going on where dietary supplements, especially some of the ones we're talking about, are increased uh, in the last six months. So the usage has been increased. The purchasing has been increased based on the purchase data. Some of those purchase data may suggest people stocking up in what they call pantry stocking mm -hmm. to make sure they have four or five or six bottles of vitamin C or their rhodiola or whatever they're taking. 
um, in the hopes that they can have a stash in the event that these things become uh, difficult to get. And as a, as, a, as a side to this, there are reports, including ones that we've published, uh, that suggest that there have been and are currently dislocations and disruptions in the market for the supply of some of these botanicals. Uh, you mentioned echinacea and elderberry. Uh, there are others. And some of that short-term supply disruption, we don't know if it'll be long-term, we hope it's not, have been because for some example, for some things that are coming in from China, we were on a number of different herbs, there's been just shipping issues. And some of the um, shipping issues have been based on the fact that the shipping that is available, there's a priority for PPE and other kinds of materials that are being shipped from China, as opposed to herbs and medicinal plant materials. So some suppliers have said, you know, just the the the, the global, um, what's the word, priorities for certain, and the United States priorities for certain can, materials coming out of China have, so to speak, uh, superseded the, the, the priority for medicinal plants, and they've had to wait their turn to get in a container load on a ship or whatever that's slowed down the import of certain things and slowed down where the point where some companies are having to be very careful about who they ship to and honor honor uh, orders only from their current customers and not take on new customers at least that was happening in the march april may june session or first few months of the, as we go, we went into lockdown etc how that's evolving now as we're going October, November of this year, well, now that we're talking in the middle of October, remains to be seen, but we do have an article that's being, has been researched and I'll be seeing probably the first draft of it next week. So I can't give you any information right now, <clears throat> unfortunately, as to what's happening since we published the first article in Herbalgram on the effect of the supply chain, the supply chain uh, affected by COVID. But, that may, it may have loosened up a bit. In some cases, it's tightened up a bit because demand has increased. And again, a lot of this demand has increased because COVID pandemic is getting people to realize that uh, taking more supplements might be or can be uh, part of their dietary regime and their health regimen in order to uh, stay healthier and reduce the chances of getting infected or reduce the chances of having a, a, a difficult time if they do get infected. Yeah. You know, I, I understand echinacea kind of spikes the immune system. And I mean, is that what we want long-term or something well, that just kind you know, of keeps no. it on its toes without burning out our adrenals yeah. or something? No, I don't. I've all, you know, I've, I've seen that. I think that might be somewhat of a myth. Uh, I don't know that echinacea is an immunostimulant more than an immunomodulator. And I'm not really sure exactly how to language that distinction, but it doesn't necessarily increase the, the stimulate immune system, but maybe it's modulated based on the needs of the body at the time. Uh, I don't, I'm not saying that echinacea is a, an adaptogen. I don't think anybody is calling it that. But we were, we, you know, some many of us prefer to use the term immunomodulator as opposed to immunostimulant because uh, immunostimulant might have uh, more um, of an implication that it would always be stimulatory in a way that might be excessive, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the implication, or at least the inference from some people, and I'm not sure that that's always the case. And is the recommendation with Echinacea still that, you know, at, at the first sign of yeah. illness, that's yeah. when you take it? Yeah, I'm glad, glad you brought that up. There's two things about Echinacea that people should, I think, uh, keep in mind. One is... I think I can't overemphasize this enough. People should probably take their echinacea at the first signs of a sniffle. And now we're talking about the use of echinacea in a conventional cold or flu. I'm not talking about COVID here, to be right. clear. This is not about COVID because I have no data on which to base a statement. Uh, so this is not about taking echinacea for COVID. This is about taking echinacea for its conventional or traditional in the last 30, 40 years use of uh, echinacea for cold and flu. And I say traditional last 30, 40 years, because traditionally, hundreds of years ago, in the last uh, 1800s, et cetera, echinacea was used mainly for snake bites and other kinds of conditions by Plains Indians, et cetera, and eclectic physicians. It was not a cold and flu remedy until much later, maybe the you know 1970s or 80s, perhaps. 
Mm. So that's a relatively new application for echinacea, by the way. So I'm qualifying the term traditional here uh, in, in our in our context. Um, so taking it at the first signs of cold or flu, sniffles, sore throat, sniffles, etc., cetera, uh, is always indicated because uh, otherwise, uh, if you take it, you know, if you go down to sign up for a clinical study and it takes you a day or two to get into the study, uh, uh, what we've seen in some of the trials that have been done before, sometimes the patients that were tested in the echinacea group didn't get echinacea until the second or third day from the onset of symptoms, and that was too late. Now, another thing about duration of echinacea I think is important. There's this, what I might call a myth, that if you take echinacea for two, you shouldn't take echinacea for long term. And that myth, and I'm putting air quotes on it, but you can't see it on the podcast here, or the, the Toddcast, I love the term, by the way, <laughs> your Toddcast, is that when uh, my organization, the American Botanical Council in the 1990s, translated and published all of the German government's review of the safety and efficacy data on about 400 herb and medicinal plants and individual uh, ingredients and combinations, so as herbal medicines or herbal drugs in German pharmacies to determine their, uh, whether the government would approve that herbal drug. Uh, over there, they were sold as drugs, not supplements, uh, with a government approval. Echinacea had, I think, an eight-week, if I remember correctly, uh, don't hold me to this. I, you know, I'm, I'm the senior editor of the monograph, but the, the commissioning monographs, but I don't remember exactly every word of them. I believe it's around eight weeks for um, uh, duration use. Do not, you know, duration of use eight, eight weeks is maximum. Mm. And that was because the approved use for echinacea preparations, according to the German government, based on the information available at that time, was for small. Uh, symptoms associated with cold and flu, or lower urinary tract infections. So echinacea was was indicated in Germany for lower urinary tract infections. The idea is that if you're going to self-medicate with echinacea or any other material, uh, and you're self-medicating, and your symptoms have not subsided in eight weeks, and you're still taking something after eight weeks, well, presumably, you've got maybe something else that might be more serious that needs medical and proper conventional or uh, licensed medical intervention or diagnosis, at least. So the idea of an eight-week duration of use for echinacea was not based on the idea that it would be deleterious to your health after eight weeks or so or lower or suppress your immune system after eight weeks or so. It was based on simply the conditions for which it was recommended for approved for use um, would have ameliorated by that time. And if you still have symptoms that are warranting your having taken this for that long a period of time, you may have misdiagnosed what you've got. That's the rationale for that. So let's clear that myth up, okay? Yeah. So are there are there other immune modulating herbs that just haven't really, you know, yeah. been able to get out uh, into the sun uh, under the, the the great umbrella of echinacea and real elderberry has seemingly come out of almost nowhere in the last couple of years. Um, you know, it always seemed like it was always echinacea that was like well, the standard. Elderberry's been on the table for over twenty some odd years. I think Dr. Makuglu, who had a company in Israel, did some of the first. Uh, research on the antiviral effects of elderberry. So that, and that was over 20 years ago. So elderberry has its position here. I mean, it's surely if uh, people uh, for colds and flu, particularly, and uh, uh, obviously uh, astragalus has uh, some significant uh, uh, evidence supporting its safe and effective use, although there's not a lot of clinical trials to my knowledge of astragalus, but that's reported based on its use in Chinese medicine. Andrographis would be one, and that's one of my favorites in the event that I ever have uh, the sniffle, the cold, for the, that is the first sign of a cold or flu. I take Andrographis extract with the echinacea, with the vitamin C, with the garlic, it's, with the elderberry. Uh, I take a cocktail. I make a cocktail and knock out whatever's going on with me, you know, within usually 24 to 36 hours if it's a probably a cold or flu. And that only happens to me every three or four years, I've been very fortunate, fairly healthy, 
maybe it's being vegetarian, maybe it's because I live in Austin. I don't know what it is, but I've been very fortunate. So Andrographis paniculata, an herb that's becoming increasingly popular, and there's some very good uh, research, clinical research supporting its use. I would definitely uh, recommend that people look into that uh, as a uh, way to uh, just help them during cold and flu season. Uh, it's, there's remarkable research coming out of the Swedish Herbal Institute in, in Sweden, and there's research now from around the world it's called the king of bitters. It's an extremely bitter herb, but very useful. And another herb that's overlooked often uh, for a potential immunomodulating activity is eleuthero, which mm. was formerly called Siberian ginseng. It's in the ginseng family, but not the Panax genus. So it's not true ginseng like Asian ginseng or American ginseng, but it's in the same family as ginseng and was originally introduced into the United States and marketed as a Siberian ginseng from Siberia and or Manchuria, north, northeastern China. Uh, and it has some immunomodulating activity as well. It's not as popular in the marketplace anymore because they had, uh, I think the 2004 Farm Act had a provision in it that precluded the use of ginseng in its name. That was a provision that was put in by the Wisconsin ginseng growers and their mm. Senate, Senate uh, uh, representative or congressional representatives to help protect their industry, which was reasonable in many ways because this is not true ginseng. But it is in the family, and because it couldn't be sold as ginseng anymore, it's now sold as eleuthero or Siberian eleuthero uh, without the ginseng epithet on the label. Uh, sales over the last 15 or more years have really dropped, but it's still a very rel a relatively safe herb and uh, has a, a, a modicum of studies showing that it has an immune-enhancing or immune-modulating effect. And I would suggest that people look into that if they were trying to come up with some kind of regimen uh, for maintaining immunity. Now, do you what do you think about just, um, you know, kind of to move off uh, in, immune, although that that's certainly uh, a condition that has uh, that could that will define 2020. I think that's fair to say. Uh, what about just general vitality? I mean, yeah. you're you're still full of piss and vinegar. I mean, is there something that you take daily, or or you would yeah, think that might be good, or what? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm still. What do you mean still? What is what is that? Excuse me, please. Excuse me. Yeah, I'm. Uh, uh, I'm 74. I feel very fortunate to be able to wake up every morning to a healthy body, for which I give daily gratitude. Um, I take, and I'll just tell you, uh, for 30 years or more, I've been taking coenzyme Q10, which is not botanical. It's based on uh, it's based on uh, fermentation, so it's a yeast-based uh, fermentation product. But it uh, basically feeds and restores the mitochondria in the cells of my body. I'm a big believer in good mitochondrial health, so I'm a big fan of CoQ10. I have been for, like I say, since the 1980s, uh, when it first started getting available in this country. And so I started seeing the research on it that was available at that time. Uh, so that, that's part of what I take. I take rhodiola on a daily basis, by the way. I'm a fan of rhodiola. Rhodiola rosea, root from a plant that's circumboreal. It uh, grows uh, you know, up toward the, nor the Arctic Circle area and uh, it grows in northern Canada. It originally came out of Russia and I think northern Scandinavia in that area out there. Um, but it's a wonderful plant, very safe. There's a lot of good research on it. It uh, has some interesting, it has some, some uh, studies that shows a potential antidepressant activity, by the way. But it also shows, has some studies showing that it's useful for uh, helping allay fatigue. So um, I just take it as a general tonic. I take schizandra, another adaptogen. Rhodiola is considered an adaptogen. Eleuthero, by the way, is considered an adaptogen. Uh, true or Panax ginseng, Panax uh, uh, kinkafolius, the American ginseng, considered adaptogenic. Uh, as is schizandra, the fruit from a, a, a plant in China, which has five flavors, uh, based on uh, taste, and because it has the flav five flavors, Wu Zi, I believe, Wu Wei in, in China, Chinese, and forgive my poor pronunciation of Chinese, uh, but I think it's called Wu Wei, meaning five flavors. So in Chinese med med traditional medicine, which is energetic based, 
the idea of energies of plants and hot, cold, wet, dry, etc. Oh, yeah, right, These right. flavors moving in every direction, something that has uh, sweet, sour, bitter, acrid, and pungent, I believe, or, or salty, I forget the, the five flavors. I just, I just named six, I think. But uh, since it goes in all flavor directions, then it's, presum it's presumed to be uh, something that helps you move in all directions, and hence the adaptogenic uh, implication or inference. Adaptogens are defined as natural substances that have a very high safety uh, profile that help the body adapt to different types of nonspecific stress. So that's where your ginseng and rhodiola and ashwagandha and some of these plants fall into that concept. I, I remember back in the 1990s, I think it was, I was asked to write an article for a major American uh, medical journal, uh, not, an, not an alternative medicine journal, but a conventional medical journal. And they asked me to write an article about what is, the, at that time, the current um, clinical data supporting the potential clinical uh, use by conventional physicians of some of these herbs and phytomedicines. And in my uh, paper, that this was an invited paper. So I spent time, put the, submitted the paper, and I, one of the peer reviewers re, uh, objected to my use of the term adaptogen. Uh, because that is not a term, and at that time, 25 years ago or so, was not a term that was recognized in Western pharmacology or Western medicine. It is, in fact, a, a, a term that was originally generated by Soviet uh, researchers in the 1940s and 1950s, doing research on ginseng and some uh, other herbs, including eleuthero. That's where the word adaptogen originally came from out of that uh, era and that period of research. But it wasn't recognized over here. It still is not recognized in conventional medicine as a legitimate category of pharmacology. So I pushed back and I said, well, this is, leg this is a legitimate term. I mean, they would like me to use the word tonic, uh, which I didn't believe was a appropriate back at that. In those days, I mean, Geritol was the only thing that, <laughs> that doctors considered to be a tonic. That's how it was marketed. Well, and so my what, what about the stuff that goes Jack? with gin? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But my paper was rejected because of my use of the word adaptogen mm. and my wanting to push back and insist on its inclusion to help introduce it as a new concept, uh, new over here, but not necessarily new in some parts. Of, uh, and so just, again, an indicator, one might say, of the lack of adequate awareness and some cultural biases that uh, persisted back in those days anyway, in conventional medicine journal editing circles. So are, are, are we to understand that you're responsible for the word adaptogen? No, I don't take any credit for that, but I will give credit to my good friend, George Wickman, who lives in Gothenburg, Sweden, who is the founder and owner of a company called Swedish Herbal Institute who wrote a book called Adaptogens in the 1970s. Later, I'll give my friend David Winston a, uh, and Donnie Yance, both herbalists, who wrote, both wrote books in the last five to 10 years on adaptogens for uh, uh, books uh, for the uh, popular market. But no, that, that word's been around, and I'm just grateful to have access to use it because it's a very descriptive word in an area of medicine and health that prior to that, we didn't really have a good way to handle it because our only um, availability to a descriptive term for this type of energy was tonic. And we just don't, I don't believe, I think adaptogen is superior in its implications and what it, what it connotes than the word tonic. So, uh, it's important that, you know, sometimes we expand our minds and expand our, of what's possible. And the word adaptogen helps do that. So, so gin and shizandra, is that what we're going to drink at next expo? Ginzandra, there you go. Ginzandra, oh my God, Zandra, I'm writing go. that down. There you go, good for you. Well, you uh, yeah, I, I hope we can be in a place in space time where we can share a drink like that. Right. Or we'll, right. have, we'll have to make some sh uh, cocktails and Zoom it together and do a, do a Zoom schmooze. <laughs> which is a word I like because it's almost a palindrome. It's one I made up recently. It's like we're doing right now. It's almost, it's, we're not, oh, wait a minute. 
We're not on Zoom. We're on Teams. Sorry, oh, no, Microsoft. No, no, no. I'm sorry. They'll probably they'll probably edit that out. Microsoft. <laughs> will. But uh, so but so but but here's the point. I want yeah. just before we go uh, the next point. The fact is, and here's I think worth taking home, is that in our medical conventional medical system, and I'm not a medical critic, but at the end at the same time, there isn't really enough concept about an awareness and practice in, 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 in conventional practice about giving people things that are adaptogenic in their diet that helps them improve the quality of their life by enhancing the functioning of their body, including but not limited to increasing their immune system in appropriate ways and increasing their energy in ways that are that is sustainable and other things that are attributed to adaptogens. This is something that you don't see in conventional medicine yet. And it's something that's happening at the consumer level with our advocacy of botanicals and adaptogenic botanicals. Yeah. You know, boy, have you know botanicals they to me they kind of in a way, they got unfairly shoehorned into the larger supplements, into the vitamin mineral market with Deshay, which, you know, subject to structure function claims. And you can't make actually any, you know, prevent, treat, cure, diagnose any disease. But botanicals really are powerful modulators of human physiology in a, in a number of ways it, it it almost it's almost a shame that they don't have their own regulatory structure where you can make some actual claims about the in some ways maybe fast acting effects and and profound uh, effects of botanicals on on human health what do you think about that idea well, I, you know, I think you're opening up a Pandora's box of how many hours do we have left to talk about the Deshay and the, how Deshay was was uh, was negotiated by botanicals got yeah. into the dietary supplement category in the first place because I was there at the time, not in Washington, hammering out negotiations. I wasn't lobbying because I was running a 501c3 independent nonprofit organization. We didn't lobby. We published materials that people could use for educational purposes on either side of the issue and still do, but that's not where my role was. But the fact is that that was the only place to find safe harbor for botanicals from potential misregulation, overregulations, and in some cases, in a, um, uh, poorly, uh, poorly conceived and ill-informed a regulation that would have happened and was happening at that time. I mean, with all due respect to the FDA, and I believe there are 10 or 12 or 14,000 people with that are dedicated public servants, and I have a regular respect for the people at the Food and Drug Administration. I have friends there. At the time, 26 years ago, when Deshaies was being uh, passed, I think it was October 15th, I think it was. Oh my God. 26 was years ago yesterday, the President Clinton signed the bill it was passed by Congress, and then it was signed by President Clinton a few weeks later, you know, before the end of October. But I think we're we're actually at the 26th anniversary of Deshaies this week. When that happened, there was no question that vitamins and minerals were diet were dietary supplements. They were called food supplements until the term dietary came up, and the term dietary came up because some of these things, like botanicals, were not conventional foods, but they were taken in dietary form. People had their echinacea bottle or their ginseng bottle on the Lazy Susan on the breakfast table next to their vitamin C and their one-a-day vitamin. And that's how they were taken in the dietary format. And a dietary is part of the lifestyle. So the word dietary was intentional because in Europe, they're still called food supplements. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm angling to make them change to health supplements because I, I, feel like when people see dietary supplements, they think ephedra. They think like, oh, it's a diet pill. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what right. That, that's, so the, that's, that's the potential downside is that, that, I, that it's for dieting and weight loss. But the term dietary was, was intentional. It was a term of art that was created. It was added uh, to help expand the scope of what we covered by this new legislation, not just letter vitamins and minerals, uh, amino acids, 
were allowed to get in. They even had some scrutiny that FDA was concerned about. But herbs were considered a, a, a class of unapproved drugs, even though many of them were common spices. Uh, you know, garlic and turmeric and you know cinnamon and all these things that we have so much good evidence on for their their, their health benefits when taken in, in quantities larger than used as a food flavoring. Uh, but it got to the point where there was no place for herbs to go because setting up a new regulatory call, category called tradition called traditional medicines, which which would have been a nut third class of drugs, you know, RX, OTC, and then traditional medicines was just not within the scope of what was possible at that time. And it made more sense at that time because of the misregulation and the, uh, the, the ill-informed regulation of many herb materials just to put them in there with the vitamins and minerals. In, in many cases, were they because they belong that way. I mean, why not? Why isn't garlic something that's, because it is a food. And why isn't turmeric uh, allowed? I mean, why shouldn't it be? It is a food and cinnamon and 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 so and ginger and so many more of these things. Now, golden seal, nobody eats golden seal as a food, even in an emergency situation. So some of these things don't fit into the food category per se, but they fit into the dietary category because that's how they're consumed. You know, Mark, I would uh, love to uh, just sit and talk uh, until roughly midnight, and uh, but I think we should cut it short. <laughs> I sh we should cut it long, and but why don't you just? Uh, I guess uh, what what are we going to see on the cover of Herbalgram next month, or you know, do you have any ideas over the next couple issues, just as a way of giving yeah, us a yeah. little sneak peek into what you're thinking is uh, worthy of uh, botanical consideration? Well, we have a very interesting article by our good friend Mark Plotkin, who's an ethnobotanist, on the ethnobotany of wine as a medicine. Uh, I don't know if it'll make it into Herbalgram 128 or 129, so sometime by the first of this next year or so, we'll probably have that available. So that's going to be interesting. Looking at wine as a medicine and how far back that goes into pre-Greek or Roman times when they use it medicinally and the evidence that he's collected on that. That's, that's really kind of interesting. That's it's helped that, me that's, get through COVID so far. <laughs> well, if it's red, it's, it's, it works for me. <laughs> Which, by the way, is what my next stop will be after we hang up because uh, it's Friday evening and I'm going to have some red wine. Yeah, you know, I've even, you know, I... I think when I started drinking wine, it was white wine, and then you know I matured a little bit. But this summer, I've gotten back into some some New Zealand uh, white wines, and uh, Anthony Almada said turned me on to some, and I thought, oh well, that's that was nice for a hot summer night. You know, I was I was actually surprised that I I was going to still like it. So uh, so wine, why not? I guess that's uh, oh, boom, boom, good one. Let's, let's just let's just keep it at that. And um, Mark, I, I look forward to talking to you again, and I can't wait till we see each other. And uh, one of these days, one of these days. And uh, until then, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Blumenthal, Executive Director of the American Botanical Council, and uh, the 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 ranking member on the natural products industry, Mount Rushmore. You heard it here first. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Mark. Thank you. Stay healthy, my friends. All right. Thank you for listening to a Healthy Insider Podcast. We are continually looking to improve your podcast experience and want to hear from you, the industry listener. Please take a moment to take our quick survey and provide your feedback at naturalproductsinsider.com slash podcast survey.